0: chapter 6 part 3 of marie antoinette and her son this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by maggie travers marie antoinette and her son by louise maubach chapter 6 the trial part 3 so your name is mademoiselle olivier asked the president that unfortunately is the name i am called by answered she sighing but as soon as i leave the prison i shall be married and then i shall be called madame for my child's sake you would do me a great kindness now if you would call me madame at these naive words a smile lighted up the stern faces of the judges and sped like a ray of sunshine over all the countenances of the spectators Even the rigid features of the attorney-general were touched for an instant with the glow. Only those of the Countess Lamont darkened. "'Your Majesty plays to-day the naive part of a passenaire perversi, cried she with a hard, shrill voice. "'It is well known that Your Majesty loves to play comedies, and that you are sometimes content with even the minor parts. Now, do not look at me, Mrs. Queen, with such a withering look.' do not forget that you are playing the part of mademoiselle olivier and that you have come secretly from versailles to save your honour and your diamonds officer cried the president if the accused allows herself to speak a single word without being asked lock her up and gag her the officer bowed in token of his unconditional obedience and drew out the wooden gag which he showed the countess going straight to her chair I will comply with your wish, said the President, turning to the living portrait of the Queen. I will call you, Madame, if you promise me in return to answer all my questions faithfully. I promise you that by my child, answered Mademoiselle Olivier, bowing slightly. Tell me then, do you know the person who sits in that chair? Mademoiselle Olivier cast a quick look at Lamont, who glared at her from her seat. Oh, yes, I know her, she said. That is, I do not know her name. I only know that she lives in a splendid palace, that she is very rich and has everything nice. How do you know this, lady? Tell us that. I will tell you, gentlemen, and I swear to you that, so sure as I want to be an honorable wife, I will tell you the whole truth i was walking one day in the palais royal when a tall slim gentlemanly man who had passed me several times came up to me said some soft things and asked permission to visit me i answered him smiling that he could visit me at once if he would take me into one of the eating-houses and dine with me he accepted my proposition and we dined together and were merry and jolly enough for a new acquaintance When we parted we promised to meet there again on the morrow, and so we did. After the second dinner the amiable gentleman conducted me home, and there told me that he was very distinguished and influential, that he had friends at court, and was very well acquainted with the king and queen. He told me that he would procure for me powerful patrons, and told me that a very distinguished lady, who had interested herself in my behalf through his description, would visit me and make my acquaintance. On the next day he really came in company with a lady, who greeted me very friendly, and was astonished at her first glimpse of me. "'Who was that lady?' asked the President. Mademoiselle pointed with her thumb over her shoulder. "'The lady yonder,' said she. "'Are you sure of it?' "'As of my own life, Mr. President.' "'Good, good. You saw the lady quite frequently.' Yes, she visited me twice more, and told me about the queen and the splendid way they lived at court. She promised me that she would bring me to the court and make a great lady out of me, if I would do what she wanted me to do. I promised it gladly, and declared myself ready to do everything that she should order me, if she would keep her promise and bring me to the court, that I might speak with the king and queen. But why were you so curious to go to the court and speak with the king and queen? Why? Good Lord, that is very simple and natural. It is a very easy thing for the king to make a captain out of a sergeant, and as the king, so people say, does nothing but what the queen tells him to, I wanted, of course, before everything to have a good word from the queen. I should have liked to see my dear George wearing epaulets, and it must have tremendously pleased my boy to have come into the world the child of a captain. Did you tell that to the lady? Certainly, I told her, and she promised me that the Queen would undoubtedly do me the favor, provided that I would do everything that she bade me do in the name of the Queen. She told me, then, that the Queen had ordered her to seek a person suitable to play a part in a little comedy, which she was privately preparing, that I was just the person to play this part, and if I would do it well and tell nobody in the world, not even George, when he should come home from Brussels she would not only give me her help in the future but pay me fifteen thousand francs for my assistance i consented with great joy of course for fifteen thousand francs was a magnificent dowry for a marriage and i was very happy in being able to earn so much without having to work very hard for it but did it not occur to you that that was a dangerous game that they wanted yon to play and for which they were going to pay such a high sum I did have such thoughts once in a while, but I suppressed them soon, so as not to be troubled about my good fortune. And besides that, the countess assured me that everything was done at the command of the queen, and that it was the queen who was going to pay the fifteen thousand francs. That quieted me completely, for as an obedient and true subject it was my duty to obey the queen, and show my devotion to her in all things, more particularly when she was going to pay so magnificently meantime i comforted myself that it could be nothing bad and criminal that the queen could order done and the countess assured me that too and told me that everything i had to do was to represent another person and to make a lover believe that he was with his love which would of course please him immensely and make him very happy besides i did not think it any sin to do my part toward making an unfortunate lover have happy thoughts i was very much pleased with this part and made my plan to speak to him in very tender and loving tones. "'But were you not curious to know for whom you were playing this part, and what lady you had to represent?' "'I should certainly have liked very much to know, but the countess forbade me to ask, and told me that I must suppress my curiosity, and, on the other hand, make an effort to notice nothing at all, else I should receive only half of the money.' and besides if they noticed that i knew what i was doing i might be sent to the bastille i was still upon that and did not trouble myself about anything further and asked nothing more and only thought of learning my lesson well that i might get the fifteen thousand francs for my marriage portion so they gave you a lesson to learn yes the countess and the gentleman who brought her to me came twice to me and taught me how i ought to walk how to hold my head to nod, and reach my hand to kiss. After teaching me this, they came one day and carried me in a splendid coach to the house of the Countess. There I dined with them, and then we drove to Versailles. They walked with me in the park, and at a place near the pavilion they stood still and said to me, Here is where you will play your little comedy to-morrow. This is the spot which the Queen has herself appointed, and everything which takes place is at the express command of Her Majesty that entirely quieted me a writ i turned back to paris overjoyed in company with the countess and her companion they kept me that night in their beautiful home and on the next day we drove again to versailles where the countess had a small suite of apartments she herself dressed me and condescended to help me like a waiting-maid what kind of suit did she put upon you exactly such a one as i am wearing to-day only when we were ready and it had begun to grow dark the countess laid a white mantle over me and covered my head with a cap then she drove me into the park gave me a letter and said you will give this letter to a gentleman who will meet us we went in silence through the paths and alleys of the park and i confess that my heart beat right anxiously and that i had to think a great deal upon the fifteen thousand francs in order to keep my courage up did you go with the countess alone or was someone else with you The gentleman who first made my acquaintance, and who was, as I believe, the husband of the countess, accompanied us. After we had walked about for a while, he stopped and said, Now you must walk alone. I shall, however, be there at the right time to make a noise, and to put the amorous lover to flight. Then he stepped into the thicket, and we were alone. On this the countess gave me a rose, and said, You will give this rose with the letter to the person, and say nothing more than this. You know what that signifies. The countess made me repeat that three times, and then said, You need not add a single word to that. The queen herself has selected these words, and she will hear whether you repeat them correctly, for she will stand behind you and be a spectator of the whole scene. On this the countess withdrew, leading me into a thicket, and soon the gentleman came, and I came out of the place of my concealment. After he had made me some very deep reverences, I handed him the rose and the letter, and repeated the very words the countess had taught me. The gentleman sank upon his knee, and kissed the hand which I extended with a rose. At this moment we heard a noise, as if of men's steps approaching, and the countess came running up. "'For God's sake!' she cried. "'We are watched! Quick, quick, come!' and she drew me hurriedly away we left the garden and returned to the dwelling of the countess and there i remained alone for the countess and her husband said laughing that they must go and console the old gentleman for having so short a rendezvous and for being so quickly disturbed i asked whether i had done my part well and the countess said that the queen was very well satisfied with me that she had stood in the thicket and had observed all early next morning we rode back to paris and when we had arrived at their hotel the countess paid me the fifteen thousand francs all correctly but she made this condition that i must go see my george as soon as possible and that till i should go i must remain in a little room in her house i rode at once to my george and announced my coming and the time seemed endless till i received his answer although the countess paid a great deal of attention to me and always invited me to her petit soupeur where we had a right merry time as soon as the answer had come from my Georges, who wrote me that he was expecting me i took my departure in an elegant post-carriage like a lady for the countess was not willing that i should travel in a diligence and her husband had paid in advance for all the relays of horses as far as brussels so that i had a very agreeable comfortable ride and this, I think, is all that I have to relate. And my son will not have an unquiet night, for I have kept my word and told everything truthfully. "'You have nothing to add to this?' "'What could I add to this?' asked Olivier, sighing. "'You know as well as I the end of my history. You know that a fortnight after that little scene at Versailles I was arrested by police agents in Brussels and brought to Paris.' you know also that i swore to take my life if my dear george were not allowed to visit me daily in prison you know that my dear child was born in prison and that it is now half a year old while his poor mother is accused and not yet gained her freedom you know that all what have i that i could add to this i beg you let me go and return to my child for my little george is certainly awake and his father does not know how to quiet him when he cries you may go to your child said the president with a gentle smile officer conduct madame olivier back to the witness room madame olivier expressed her thanks for this by throwing a kiss of the hand to the president and the judges and then hastily followed the officer who opened the door of the adjoining room as it swung back a loud cry of the child was heard and madame olivier who was standing upon the threshold "'turned her fair face back to the President "'with a triumphant expression, and smiled. "'Did I not tell you so?' she cried. "'My son is calling, for he is longing for me. "'I am coming, my little Georges, I am coming.' "'She sprang forward, and the door closed behind her. "'You have heard the statements of the witness,' "'said the President, addressing Countess Lamont. "'You see now that we have the proof "'of the ignominious and treacherous intrigues "'which you have conducted.' you will in the face of such proofs still endeavour to deny the facts which have been given in evidence i have seen neither proofs nor facts answered lamont scornfully i have only been amazed at the self-possession with which the queen goes through her part and wondered how far her light-mindedness will carry her she is truly an adroit player and she has played the part of madame olivier so well that not a motion nor a tone would have betrayed the queen how madame asked the president in amazement do you pretend to assert that this witness who has just left the hall is not madame olivier but another person do you not know that this witness this living portrait of the queen has for ten months been detained at the bastille and that no change in the person is possible i only know that the queen has played her part well said lamont shrugging her shoulders She has even gone so far in her desire to show a difference between Madame Olivier and the Queen as to make a very great sacrifice, and to disclose a secret of her beauty. She has laid aside her fine false teeth and let us see her natural ones, in order that we may see a difference between the Queen and Madame Olivier. Confess only, gentlemen, that it is a rare and comical sight to have a Queen so like a courtesan that you can only distinguish the one from the other by the teeth and the countess broke out into a scornful laughter, which found a loud echo in some of the veiled ladies in the tribune. "'Moderate your pleasantry, madame,' commanded the president. "'Remember that you are in a grave and perilous situation, and that justice hangs over you like the sword of Damocles. You have already invoked your fate in calling God to witness that the innocent shall not suffer for the guilty, and now this word is fulfilled in yourself.' The whole edifice of your lies and intrigues crumbles over you and will cover your head with the dust of eternal infamy i experienced nothing of it yet god be thanked cried lamont shrugging her shoulders you will be punished for these shameless deeds sooner than you expected answered the president solemnly you said that you wanted proof that that was not the queen who gave the rendezvous to the cardinal in versailles that the promissory note was not subscribed by the queen and that the letters to the cardinal were not written by her if the proof of this were to be displayed to you it would be right to accuse you of high treason we have already exhibited the proof that it was not queen marie antoinette who made an appointment with the cardinal in versailles but that it was the comedy planned and brought out by yourself with which you deceived the cardinal and made him believe that he was going to buy the necklace of which you intended to rob him it only remains to show you that the subscription of the queen and the letters to the cardinal were forged by you and certainly cried the countess i am very curious to have you exhibit the proofs of this that is a very simple matter answered the president calmly We confront you with him who at your direction imitated the handwriting of the queen and wrote the letters. Officer, summon the last witness. The officer threw open the door which led to the next room. A breathless silence prevailed in the great hall. Everyone was intensely eager to see this last witness who was to uncover the web of frauds of the countess's spinning. The great burning eyes of the accused, too, were turned to this door and her compressed lips and her piercing glance disclosed a little of the anxiety of her soul although her bearing and manner were still impudent and scornful and now the door opened and a cry of amazement and rage broke from the lips of the countess de cried she madly doubling up her little hands into fists and extending them toward the man who now entered the hall shameful shameful he has turned against me and losing for a moment her composure she sank back upon the seat from which she had risen in her fright. A deathly paleness covered her cheeks, and, almost swooning, she rested her head on the back of the chair. "'You now see that God is just,' said the President, after a brief pause. "'Your own conscience testifies against you and compels you to confess yourself guilty.' She sprang up and compelled herself to resume her self-possessed manner and to appear cool and defiant as before. "'No!' she said i do not confess myself guilty and i have no reason to my heart only shuddered when i saw this man enter whom i have saved from hunger overwhelmed with kindness and whom my enemies have now brought up to make him testify against me but it is over i am now ready to see new lies new infamies heaped upon me Monsieur ruther de valais may now speak on his calumnies will only drop from the undented mail of my conscience and with possessed bearing and an air of proud scorn countess lamont looked at the man who bowing and trembling advanced by the side of the officer to the green table and sedulously shunned meeting the eyes of lamont which rested on him like two fiery daggers the president propounded the usual questions as to name and rank he answered that his name was ruteau de valais and that he was steward and secretary of the countess lamont on further questioning he declared that after the Count and the Countess had been arrested, he had fled and gone to Geneva in order to await the end of the trial, but as it lingered so long, he had attempted to escape to England, but had been arrested. Why do you wish to escape? asked the Attorney General. Because I feared being involved in the affairs of the Countess Lamont, answered Rotol de Volette, in low tones. Say rather you knew that you would be involved with them, You have at a previous examination deposed circumstantially, and you cannot take back what you testified then, for your denial would be of no avail. Answer, therefore, what have you done? Why were you afraid of being involved in the trial of Countess Lamont? "'Because I had done a great wrong,' answered Ruteau with vehemence, "'and because I allowed myself to be led astray by the promises, the seductive arts, the deceptions of the Countess. I was poor,' I lived unseen and unnoticed, and I wished to be rich, honored, and distinguished. The countess promised me all this. She would persuade the cardinal to advance me to honor. She would introduce me to the court, and through her means I should become rich and sought after. I believed all this, and like her devoted slave, I did all that she asked of me." "'Slavish soul!' cried the countess, with an expression of unspeakable scorn. What did the countess desire of you? asked the president what did you do in her service i wrote the letters which were intended for the cardinal answered ruthol de volet the countess composed them and i wrote them in the handwriting of the queen how do you know her handwriting the countess gave me a book in which a letter of the queen's was printed in exact imitation of her hand i copied the letters as nearly as i could and so worked out my sentences he lies! He lies!" cried the Countess with a fierce gesture. "And how was it with the promissory note to the jewellers, Bonnemire and Bassinage? Do you know about that?" "Yes," answered Roto with a sigh. "I do know about it, for I wrote it at the direction of the Countess and added the signature." "Had you a copy?" "Yes, the signature of the facsimile." "In the printed letter was there the subscription which you inserted?" no there was only the name marie antoinette nothing further but the countess thought that this was only a confidential way of writing her name as a daughter might use in a letter to her mother it was a letter written by the queen to her mother but that in a document of a more business-like character there must be an official signature we had a long discussion about it which resulted in our coming to the conclusion that the proper form would be marie antoinette of france so i practised this several times and finally wrote it on the promissory note he lies cried the countess stamping on the floor he is a born liar and slanderer i am prepared to show the proof at once that i speak the truth said rotot de valet if you will give me writing materials i will write the signature of the queen in the manner in which it was written on the promissory note THE PRESIDENT GAVE THE ORDER FOR THE REQUISITE ARTICLES TO BE BROUGHT AND LAID ON A SIDE TABLE. ROUTEAU TOOK THE PEN AND WITH A RAPID HAND WROTE SOME WORDS, WHICH HE GAVE TO THE OFFICER TO BE CARRIED TO THE PRESIDENT. THE LATTER TOOK THE PAPER AND COMPARED IT WITH THE WORDS WHICH WERE WRITTEN ON THE promissory NOTE. HE THEN PASSED THE TWO TO THE ATTORNEY GENERAL AND HE TO THE JUDGE NEXT TO HIM. THE PAPERS PASSED FROM HAND TO HAND AND, AFTER THEY CAME BACK TO THE PRESIDENT AGAIN, HE ROSE FROM HIS SEAT i believe that the characters on this paper precisely accord with those on the note the witness has given what seems to me irrefutable testimony that he was the writer of that signature as well as the letters to the cardinal he was the culpable instrument of the criminal le montevolaire those of the judges who are of my opinion will rise the judges arose as one man the countess uttered a loud cry and fell seized with fearful spasms to the ground I declare the investigation and hearings ended said the president covering his head let the accused and the witnesses be removed and the spectators tribune be vacated we will adjourn to the council room to prepare the sentence which will be given tomorrow end of chapter 6 part 3 recording by maggie travers chapter 6 part 3 of marie antoinette and her son this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by maggie travers marie antoinette and her son by louise molbach chapter 6 the trial part 3